The Choose Love movement offers no-cost solutions that keep our kids safe, providing them with the skills and tools they need to flourish. Join us in our mission to create the world we want to live in, one that's connected and compassionate. Check us out at ChooseLoveMovement.org. Together, we can choose love. Hi, my name is Scarlett Lewis, and I am the founder of the Jesse Lewis Choose Love Movement. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Choose Love Podcast. Today, I am interviewing John Romano, who perpetrated a school shooting 20 years ago in his high school in New York. He was 16 years old at the time. He shot at a few of his classmates and hit one of his teachers in the leg. He pled guilty and spent the next 17 years in federal prison. He's out now and shared his story on the Choose Love podcast in hopes that it will shed some light on how and why school shootings happen and how to prevent them. I ask when you listen to keep your heart open to his story and what he has to say. I believe people can make mistakes, horrific ones, and be rehabilitated and come back to their true essence, which is, of course, love. I say this with some credibility because I've worked for years in prisons and have met many men and women who have done horrific things that have been transformed by choosing love. I believe that John wants to be part of the solution. I think a powerful way of doing this is to share his story so that we can understand the pain beneath these devastating tragedies. I've spoken to other school shooters as well because I want to ask the questions I didn't get to ask the man who murdered Jesse. What happened that caused you to do this? What needs weren't met? What could have been done that would have kept you from committing these atrocities? The answers are usually very similar and it has to do with being seen. You'll hear that in this podcast as well. Don't discount the importance of this. As humans, we are desperate for validation and to be noticed. This is becoming more difficult with our addiction to cell phones and the disconnection it creates. I hope the takeaway for you is to think differently when you read about the next school shooting, to pause in the choice moment and get curious about the point of pain that started the downward trajectory in their lives. And I hope you can thoughtfully respond with love by doing a positive action to be part of the solution. This can look like having the courage to step outside of your own busyness, distraction, or even pain to help someone and forgiving those who've hurt you to free yourself from pain and helping others do the same. Making sure your kid's school has Choose Love so they can learn the essential life skills that enable us to manage adversity and grow from it. I believe in forgiveness. John did the prison time and he's wanting to help now. I think his story can do this. Thanks for listening. And as always, thank you for choosing love. And I turned around and I walked away. And as I'm walking back down the hallway, that's when I'm grabbed from behind by vice principal who had heard thing, you know, heard the shots fired, didn't know what it was. There had been construction going on in some parts of the school. And he thought it was either something like that, or he thought maybe somebody was setting off firecrackers or something. And so he came to investigate. And when he did, you know, finally come and see me, I was walking down the hall away from him. And so he comes up from behind and he reaches around me and grabs the barrel and he reaches around the other side, grabs the stock and he starts to basically like squeeze. And as I'm, you know, now I'm suddenly like caught off guard and I'm starting to try to like push the gun like away from me and away from him so I can get control of it again. You know, but he's I'm a big guy, but he's also a big guy and he's not letting go. He's holding on. And I start to try to like, you know, shake him off me. And um, I didn't know there was a teacher who was coming up from behind us to help him. Mm. And I'm, you know, now I'm trying to like shake this guy off my back Mm. and the gun goes off. And I didn't know at the time the teacher got hit in the shin. Mm. And, you know, I'm still just in my mind. I'm like, I'm trying to get this guy off of me. I'm trying to get control of the gun again. But um, eventually I'm just kind of like, all right, I let go of the gun and I say, fine, I give up. 
And, you know, he just kind of grabs me. He's now holding the gun. And he just brings me into a teacher's office because he's knocking on the door and lets the teacher know, like, it's all right. I got him. Like, everything's okay. And the teacher opens up the door, puts me into the office and, you know, wait for the police. Mm-hmm. So that's a lot, John. I know. And what are you thinking? What are you thinking uh, after you've been disarmed and you're sitting there waiting for the police? I don't really remember much of what I was thinking. But um, I can't tell you. I, I, I can't. I remember just thinking the only thing I remember is, you know, because they're asking me all these questions and, you know. I remember hearing them because they ask, is everybody okay? And I remember hearing somebody say, no, and, and I, I don't even mention his name. But I remember them saying, no, uh, somebody's been shot. And it didn't even connect in my brain that I shot somebody. And I don't know. But. But did he live? Yeah, he, he was hit in the shin. You know, thankfully he wasn't seriously injured physically, but, you know, mentally him and everybody else. You know, so can you take us through you were taken by the police yeah. you were um put in jail did yeah. you did you stay in jail through your trial and then you received a prison sentence Right. No, I so, uh, yeah, there was no bail or anything like that. So I'm in county jail and I would eventually plead guilty um, to multiple counts of attempted murder, reckless endangerment. I, I just didn't, I didn't care enough to fight and to talk about what I was doing that day versus I didn't care because I didn't want to re-traumatize people. And I also just, I just wanted to go and have it be done with. I just wanted to go and be in prison, you know. Well, how old were you, John? I was 16. You were 16 at the time. And when you say you, you pled guilty, but you didn't want to kind of defend yourself, but would you have said that you weren't shooting to kill that you were not shooting at the people is that what you're kind of implying yeah you okay. know um because i know and i know what it is i know that most people don't believe me when i say that well that this, so, so okay can we talk about that for a minute because i yeah. did notice you know i went one when uh, a friend of mine had sent me your TikTok and I went on your TikTok and I'm looking at it and you had recently had a bunch of people come on saying that they had read the police report, which by the way, I have not. Mm -hmm. uh, and that um, the, the, the kids that you shot at, and, and uh, I guess I don't know if there were witnesses, but said that you did direct the the gun at them and they mm -hmm. saw the uh you know the flash at the end of the barrel and so that that is incongruent and that's what they were calling out yeah so um and you know like we talked about briefly in the email is it's completely understandable from from my victim's standpoint from the witness's standpoint they see the gun pointed down the hallway Mm -hmm. And they believe that I'm shooting at, you know, those two students. Um, one of the students uh, in the hallway told police in his statement that I was uh, pointing away from him in the direction of his friend, um, which basically I'm saying like, all right, the one who made that statement, um, 
realized that I wasn't pointing at him because he was more on the left where his friend was a little bit more um, straight in front of me. Um, but no, I, I was pointing more to the right. And that's where, you know, the bird shot you can see completely goes up into the ceiling away from them. Mm -hmm. But from their standpoint, they see the gun pointed down the hallway. Right. They believe that they are about direction. to die. They believe that they're about to die in that moment. And I don't take that away from them. I don't take away their pain. I know what they, no, I don't know what they were going through. I can never know what they're going through. But I'm not saying, you know, that um, what I did was terrible. I'm not trying to say anything about what I did wasn't a horrible, traumatic thing that terrorized not just them, but everybody in that school, their family, their friends, the community as a whole. You know, um, and, and I, I, it's not my, so when I, when I came home from prison, my intent was. Also, oh, wait, let's, out. let's say, what let's, was your sentence? What sentence did you right, receive so, after you pled guilty on all counts? Right. So I was sentenced to, to 20 years. 20 years in, in prison. What kind right. of prison? Hmm? What, uh, where, where was the prison? I'm just curious. Uh, so I was in several different prisons. It's okay. New York State. You know, okay. I'm in maximum security. Uh, they didn't care. You know, at 16, 17 years old, you go into adult uh, prisons in New York State at that time. Um, what was that like? So, so you actually served 17 years of your prison mm -hmm. in maximum security? The entire time, yeah. I, was, I, was, I stayed in maximum security. Um, you know, where they believed that because of the, um, you know, the violent public nature of my crime, that they believed that I was an escape risk, that I was somebody who had to be kept in maximum security at all times. Um, so, yeah, so I was released almost three years ago from Auburn Correctional Facility um, in New York State. How was um, that time? Yeah, so prisons are not meant to rehabilitate people, unfortunately. Um, and I initially, I was serving my sentence just kind of young, angry, mad like everybody else because it's a chaotic environment. But there was also a lot of support. And I was uh, very, very surprised uh, by even some of the other inmates who kind of almost had a paternal instinct towards me. Here I am, this, you know, as I go into the state system, 17-year-old kid. Um, and some of them were, were definitely supportive of trying to help me of like, no, this isn't you. This isn't how you should be acting. You might have been sentenced to 20 years, but this can become a lifelong thing. If you mm -hmm. get caught up in this chaos, you can and will catch more charges and serve more time. Or if you don't turn your life around, you're going to come home and come right back. Mm -hmm. You know, so I kept having this message from actually from other inmates of mm -hmm. you have to turn your life around. You have to do better. And I, it took me a while to listen to them. And throughout this, I also had my family. Um, you know, and I had some of my friends and people were still keeping in touch with me and, and trying to be supportive and trying to help me turn my life around and making me believe that this isn't forever. You know, you will come home and mm -hmm. you will have a life someday. Mm -hmm. um, so were these friends from the high school? Yeah. So I, I still had some of my friends from high school who were there that day who kept in touch with me, um, you know obviously hesitant and, and trying to figure out what the hell was going on with me mm -hmm. um but yeah i had i had friends who were at least willing to reach out to me and eventually keep in touch with me and to even visit me um and there was even people in the community who i didn't know who would reach out to me and you know send me letters saying you know what you did was terrible but you you can have a life you can turn your life around nobody was killed nobody was seriously injured you will get out of prison and i hope that you do the right thing mm -hmm. and get your life on track so it was pretty much those outside resources that really helped me eventually believe in myself and there was 
uh, I was receiving some mental health services, um, but initially I was very resistant. I stopped going. I didn't want any therapy in prison. Um, I knew that there was no real confidentiality, um, you know, because the, the therapists uh, have to leave the door open and you've got, you know, corrections officers sitting around. So I didn't want to open up and talk about my serious issues. And eventually I did, though. Eventually, I just started to, to believe like, OK, you know, I have to at least try. I have to do something. And when I did start to open up and when I did start to really deal with everything. And when I was talking more with my family and letting them know everything that happened, the sexual abuse and just how much I had struggled and how much I wanted those people at that school to feel my pain and admitting, yes, I knew I was terrorizing people. I knew that I would be traumatizing people for the rest of their lives. I wanted that. Mm -hmm. I hated myself for it, mm -hmm. but I wanted that. Mm -hmm. And it's when I was able to kind of open up about all of that is when I started to really, you know, start to kind of get that weight off my shoulders and start believing in myself and believing that, okay, I can never undo what I've done. I can never take away that pain, but I can, I can be helpful. Maybe mm -hmm. I can maybe prevent others from doing what I've done. Mm -hmm. I can prevent other communities from experiencing what mine has. Mm -hmm. and i agree with that yeah. let me ask you a question um were you cutting yourself in prison because you had been having suicidal ideation all along mm -hmm. so that must have not stopped when you got to prison it was yeah. probably still happening and i'm wondering if you were cutting as well no no um not while I was in prison, you know, the, the cutting was more of a, a temporary thing. It wasn't something that I was doing, um, you know, over a period of months or anything that was more of just kind of, um, when I was 15, I think I did that kind of almost exploring how it would feel, uh, to do it. Cause I know that some people do it as a way to distract themselves. Mm -hmm. And I also wanted to explore, well, can I kill myself this way? You know, how much pain would I really be in if I were to, to cut my wrists? You, you know, know, it's also a sign of sexual abuse. I, I did not know that. Yeah, I actually um, have um, someone who's a, a partner of Choose Love, but he's also a friend. But he used to be, he actually is a retired prison guard. And he mm. said that there was almost a 100% correlation between inmates that cut themselves and sexual abuse. Yeah. earlier in their lives which is yeah. pretty interesting yeah and and um i think that there's a lot of you know people behind bars who have been sexually abused and again not to, to make excuses for what anybody's done but it's something that doesn't get talked about enough um i actually i didn't talk about it until i had seen somebody else talking about it another man talking about it was um, this in prison and it was in prison um, where there was a man who was brave enough to be open and to talk about, you know, his, his own abuses when he was a child. And it was somebody who I looked up to, you know, because it was somebody who this wasn't a sign of weakness. This wasn't, you know, him somehow bringing himself down in any ways. Uh, this wasn't him talking about whether or not he was, you know, gay because that was also a fear that I had had, um, you know, that's how others might view me. And, and with, there's just so much that goes on with the sexual abuse and it doesn't get talked about enough, especially when it comes to young boys or with men. And that's why I try to open up about that now publicly is so that others may know you're not alone. It's more common than you think. Um, far too common with women, but it's also very common with men. It's, I believe, one out of six and it's probably more than that and it's something that should be addressed more because it does leave so that many we stuff. know about uh for boys one out of every four for mm. girls and um it says one in five children are solicited sexually while on the internet yeah so i mean that's 20%. there's just some 
there's so many things that it, it almost feels like as a society, we don't want to talk about these things because yeah, it's a difficult conversation. It's a terrible thing to talk about, mm -hmm. but we can't also just ignore it. That's not how it goes away. It only goes away like what you're doing when you're addressing it, when you're having these difficult conversations and you know, exploring, okay, what is actually happening? Why is it happening? And what can we do to stop it? Mm -hmm. You know, um, it's kind of interesting. It's this, it's this dark, deep shame. But once you speak it and, and shed a little light on it, it can be healed. Yeah. And that's, that's very important for people to know is whatever you're going through, whatever abuses you've experienced or whatever you've done, because people also sometimes think, especially when you're younger, that if you've already done something that you're ashamed of, that it's going to somehow ruin your future. And no, whatever you've experienced, whatever you've been through, whatever you've already done, it's never too late. And the more that we speak about these things, the more that, yeah, there is just kind of like this, you feel better once you speak it out loud, once you acknowledge it, and once you share that truth with others, it starts to feel better, then especially when you realize you're not alone. Over you. You're not alone, and it doesn't have control over you anymore right. once you tell somebody else. Then you yeah. start having control over it. And I think that that feeling of control is really important because you know what you described was really loss of control it was feeling helpless victimized you're blaming other people for what's going on in your life and uh and that leads to hopelessness and hopelessness is what is really dangerous for the person yeah. feeling it you were suicidal and it can be dangerous for the people around you yeah, um, I remember in the early years of my prison sentence of, I hated the idea of hope, hated it. Because I believed that it was a poison. That's what I used to tell myself. It's a poison to believe that things will ever get better. You know, yeah. uh, that I'd just be lying to myself. And, uh, and I think a lot of people believe in that too. They think that hope is this false sense of security. When in reality, no, things can and will get better. There are so many people who have been through the darkness, have made it through that darkness and are leading a good life and that you can too. And that there's so many people who are willing to help. You know, one of the things that I've shared is that we talk about how hurt people hurt people. Well, on the other side of that, healed people heal people because those of us who have been through that you know we can connect best with those who are currently going through the darkness as you know too well yourself and it's 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 hard but life can get better you know you just have to be able to to work it and to go through those difficult conversations with yourself and with others. And I think that one of the best things that we can be doing is to be raising not only awareness, but raising more resources and to be directing our attention to these issues. And because instead of reacting better to tragedies like school shootings, we should be preventing them better. We should be proactive. And that's one of the things that I talk about what I did you know, only to address the horrible actions that I've committed and to address the perspective that I'm coming from. But I also realize that we can be drawing more attention to prevention. I strongly support social emotional learning. I tell people that the more that we can help students, especially earlier, the better, but the better we can help students identify their own emotions the better that they can identify the emotions of others, how to communicate what's going on within them or to communicate with others who are struggling. And the more that we respond to their communications when they're saying that something's wrong with themselves or with others, the more that we can prevent not just school shootings, mass shootings, but the more that we can prevent suicides and overdoses because most schools thankfully will never experience a shooting. 
but almost every school will experience a, a child staying home and ending their life. Every school will experience a child who overdoses and dies. And those are things or that attempted, the, or, 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 or attempted or, or all the people who stay and suffer alone in silence, because most people who have mental illness or who struggle with drug addiction, they're not hurting other people. They're more likely to hurt themselves. You know, so when I talk about mental illness, I, I'm not I'm not the fucking poster child for it. I am the extreme example, and I understand that sometimes we learn best from extreme examples, but the vast majority of people who are suffering, they're doing so in silence. Mm -hmm. They're in pain, they feel alone, and nobody is willing to help them sometimes. Or when they reach out, there's not enough resources to help them. Mm -hmm. And that's why I use my extreme story, my life, to try to draw attention to this. Not because so many people who suffer are going to do something like what I did. No, most children that we can help and get them off a dark path, they're not on the path to do something like what I did. Most of them are just on the path of hurting alone. And that's what I want to help prevent. Because that's the vast majority of people that we can get through, that we can do something with, is to prevent them from feeling alone, from feeling like their suffering is just going to continue on for the rest of their life and that there's nothing that they can do about it. I want them to understand that that's not true, that you can do something about it, that we can help you, and that the more that we get our schools to focus not just on standardized testing and passing all of these tests, but how to be in touch with ourselves, how to be in touch with other people, that's how we can prevent all these tragedies from happening. That's how we can prevent people from going on the extreme dark path. You know, because I hear so much about tangible. I understand people want to be able to actually see something to prevent something. They want to see a metal detector or a security camera. They want to see a teacher with a gun or a, a guard with a gun. They want to see those things. But in reality, I think that also the discussions the education, especially those earlier, the better, and the continuous education on how to deal with your emotions and how to connect with people more, you're not going to see that right away. And people, because they don't see that tangible, that material evidence, they think that that's not going to help, mm -hmm. but it is. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not that instantaneous uh, preventative measure that people think that arming teachers or guards will be. But I think in the end, that's how you're going to make schools safer. That's how you're going to make society safer. And that's mm -hmm. how you're going to save more lives is by getting through to people on that deeper emotional level. You know, that's, that's what my goal is. Um, I think that's what your goal is. I think that's what so many people's goals is. And I hate the fact that I'm coming from a different perspective where I've been the one to hurt people. But we've heard from so many survivors for decades and nothing's changed. Mm -hmm. You know, look what happened, not only after so many other tragedies, but I remember being in prison still and seeing the aftermath of um, Parkland, Florida and seeing the March for Our Lives movement and seeing all the attention to these kids and their family members calling for change and the momentum that they had. And I, like so many other people, thought this is it. This is going to be the time that things happen. And they didn't. I mean, on a small scale, they did. And I'm sure in plenty of, you know, isolated locations, they did on a large scale. But overall, things go on, mm -hmm. including the terrible tragedies that we see time and time again. So that's why I tell people the only reason why I'm speaking out is because we've ignored survivors. It's because we've ignored those who have been through it themselves, like yourself. And I hate the fact that I'm on here talking with you because I don't know how hard it is for you to talk with me, but if I can do some good, if I can bring more attention to this from a different perspective because they say that you or these other kids who have been through it, they don't understand what leads somebody to do something like this, that you don't understand what would cause prevention, well, I fucking do. So, so you know what, John, your 
audience right now are educators and administrators and parents mostly. And the reason I asked you on was for you to share your story because I think that it's a courageous thing to do. You pled guilty, you did your time, and now I truly do believe that you want to be part of the solution because I've spoken to other school shooters and they too are contrite. They're sorry. They want to be part of the solution. Uh, and I, and I believe you. Um, and I think that you can be. And I think that, you know, we can, if we can listen to you and rather than calling you names, see you as a human being, which obviously you are, in pain and, and, and know what was in your head, know what was happening. Because by the way, there are lots of people like you out there right now, suffering, having the same thoughts, and they will try to perpetrate the same crimes. And so what we can do as people listening to this podcast to help those people, help people like you that are in pain so that they don't feel like the only way out is to commit a mass shooting. And even better, and what you said, and I 100% agree, is addressing the root cause of that suffering, giving kids the skills, tools, and awarenesses they need to manage that pain to prevent that type of suffering from happening in the first place. And so I think that I, I, I hope that that's how people take this interview because I know not everyone agrees with, <laughs> with my methods and, uh, and I don't, you know, I, that's fine. Not everybody has to agree with me, but we can agree that we haven't solved this issue. I think we can agree that it stems from emotional pain. And I think we can agree that there is always something we can do to help another human being in pain. We have to notice it. We have to have the courage to be with it, to be with that other person. And, and this is what I'm, I'm hoping that our interview spurs is, is, is really giving people the courage to be more mindful more present, more in the moment with other people, children, and, and really see, <laughs> you know, like I, I, I think you, you made a, a comment that really stuck out to me. You didn't feel seen and everyone saw you when you had a gun, everyone read about it. And so I think we need to slow down. We need to be present with the kids. We need to be more mindful around one another. And it's possible. You know, we, we both know Aaron Stark. I have interviewed Aaron Stark on this podcast. And I had been complaining to Aaron on that podcast. And I was saying, Aaron, oh my gosh, Sometimes I get so overwhelmed at the systems and processes that have to change in order to fix things. And he told me, no, Scarlett, you're completely wrong about that. It is not about systems and processes. It is about seeing the light of humanity in one another. And then he said something else. He said, and these two quotes I've never forgotten, he said, um, we must give love to those we feel deserve it the least. 
So we must love those we feel deserve it the least. And it's and that takes a tremendous amount of courage. And it's not an easy thing, but I do believe, and I, and I really appreciate you coming on here, John, and sharing your story and opening your heart and being vulnerable and talking about what happened and the why behind what you did, and then giving us some insight into what you think could solve the issue. Because uh, in my mind, who better to figure that out than an actual perpetrator? And and I and I I think that we should listen. I really do. Um, and I know that the other individuals that I've spoken to that have perpetrated similar crimes um, say say something similar than to what you you do as well. Um, it's important because there's a lot of pain out there and pain does change you. But that's also, I know you, you, you've probably come to term with this word, hope. That's a hopeful statement because there's always something that we can do to help ease another person's pain. So what is your plan going forward, John, about you know, how you're going to be part of the solution. I know on the other end of things, so as a victim's mom, I quit my job and I dedicated my life to being part of the solution every single day, all day long, 24 seven, that's all I do is think about ways that I can help. And, uh, you know, there's nothing more important than keeping our kids and our educators safe, keep, keeping each other safe. We're responsible. And so we all need to take action. I think also that we wait, we tend to wait for other people to fix the issue. And then, you know, we can be outraged on the other end of our phone, anonymously writing messages to the people that we blame for the continuance of issues, the escalation of the issues that have been going on for decades and it's all their fault and we take no responsibility, but I think it's time that we take some responsibility for what goes on in our communities. I know I did and uh, I got flack for that too, <laughs> but I'll tell you what, when you take responsibility for what's going on in your community and even in your world and you do one little positive action towards a solution, it's healing for yourself and it feels good and it empowers you and it increases your self-confidence and then you take another step and every every step forward that you take helps helps you and it helps other people and i know i know that you've gotten a lot of flack for it as well and i think you need to keep going i think you can probably only be doing what you're doing now because I know I'm in the same I'm in the same boat really. Um, so with that being said, what is your plan? What would and then and then another question is what would you tell the audience that you're talking to right now? What can we do? to help kids like you? What are positive action steps that we can take today if we wanna take responsibility and move forward? And, and I, know, I know everyone that's listening does. <laughs> Anyone that's listening to a Choose Love podcast is just, uh, you know, everyone that I know is such a beautiful person wanting to be part of the solution. We just need to know what to do. Um. So one of the things that, uh, that I've been doing a lot of is um, interacting with law enforcement who work with adolescents, especially those who may have been red flagged um, for making statements or threats online or in school. Um, I've spoken at a couple of conferences. I've been interacting a lot with the FBI's behavioral analysis units 
uh, where they do a lot of the psychological profiling, but they're also doing proactive work where they train um, law enforcement around the country on how to help those who are struggling, how to identify if they're a serious threat or not, and if they're able to help them, how they can do it. Um, so just um, about a month ago, I was in New Mexico speaking at a conference like that with you know one of the uh, unit chiefs of the behavioral analysis unit, and we were speaking with 200 agents and task force officers from around the country. And I shared my story and I shared with them, you know, when you are interacting with somebody, especially somebody who's young, who may be struggling, some of the best things that you can do is first, like you said, see the humanity in them. And it's also when you want somebody to open up to you, sometimes you got to open up to them. And I tell that not only to law enforcement, which can be difficult um, in their position, but also to teachers, is sometimes sharing with kids that, you know what, what goes on in your life right now will not define you for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. And sharing with them either your own experiences or letting them know that you know people who have been through rough times and have made it through, mm -hmm. you know, that is when you're more likely to get somebody to open up to you. Like mm -hmm. as I've opened up and shared my story on social media, I've had countless people reach out and share their pain, their tragedy. And yet sometimes I've had people reach out to me and share their own thoughts of doing something like hurting others or themselves and how, you know, they're really um, on the path of trying to mend and heal themselves and how watching my story has been able to help them. You know, so that's why I know that speaking out has been harmful for people, you know, hearing my story and seeing me on social media. But so many people have convinced me that the benefits can outweigh the harm, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and so I also tell parents and teachers when you're talking with these kids, I know that the administration or certain therapists might say that some of the first things you have to talk about is well, is this kid suicidal, homicidal? Mm -hmm. Have you had thoughts of hurting yourself or others? Is one of the most common questions you can ask in the beginning. And that's one of the worst things you can ask because they're gonna immediately hear that, know the consequence of saying yes, and they're going to withdraw mm -hmm. like I did so many times. The consequence because, oh, being you're gonna be sent away. Exactly, because if you admit hey, yeah, sometimes I do think about hurting myself or others, then you know that you're going to end up in a hospital or that you're going to end up in some type of trouble. And so, so many kids and adults will then withdraw mentally from that conversation and will not be opening up. Mm -hmm. So I always encourage people when you're talking with somebody is you really want to talk to them about and not just asking um, closed questions, but open-ended questions that aren't answered by yes or no. They are the type of questions where you're saying, you know, um, who do you wish understood you better? You know, where do you wish you were seen more? Those types of questions will be more likely to get somebody to open up and you'll be able to identify not just if they're feeling heard or seen, but by who they are not being heard or seen by. And then, so you're not only getting that, you know, uh, answer to that question of, okay, now we know that they're not feeling heard. Now we know who they're not feeling heard by. Mm -hmm. And now we can take those appropriate steps on connecting. How can we get them to feel heard by that person? Mm -hmm. You know, or asking those questions of, you know, if somebody or excuse me, if people were to understand one thing about you, what would it be? You know, things along that nature might be kind of deep. And but if you've been opening up to them, then they might be more likely to sit back and think, OK, yeah, I can open up to this person. I can say I wish I was better understood in this way. And I personally have had that happen. I've had, I don't have kids myself. And, um, you know, I, I'm obviously not a therapist or anything, but I've had some of my friends and I've interacted with their kids who are at that age. And they've been like, you know what, John, you know, my daughter's really struggling right now. Like, you know, and I'm just kind of like, yeah, no, definitely. We can hang out, you know, like the three of us, we, we're going to go, we're going to hang out, we're going to have dinner, we're going to have a, a conversation because 
Kids also, especially when they're 12, 13, 14 years old, we see them as kids, which they are, but they're also dealing with so many mature issues that we think that they're not ready to have conversations about, they are. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I've had conversations, just opening up and sharing my own story or talking about the divorce of my parents, the sexual abuse I've gone through, and I've opened up and, and talked a little bit about that with, you know, some of my friends' kids, guess what? They've been, oh my God, you know, like, I, they they start opening up, maybe sometimes not to me, maybe sometimes they'll just be like, wow, like, thank you so much. And the next thing you know, I'm getting a text later on saying, oh, you know, she opened up to me. She finally talked about all this stuff. And it's, yeah. So if, if you're a teacher, if you're a parent, that's the other thing is maybe they're not going to open up to you because you're an authority figure and they're afraid of how you'll react. Or maybe they're protecting you from, you know, they don't want your their pain to be your pain. Like I didn't want my pain to be my mom's pain. But maybe there's a, um, the FBI calls it bystanders, right? The third party, somebody else, another adult who's in their life that they might feel more comfortable opening up to. And that's the goal is not to get these kids to open up to you necessarily, but to get them to open up to somebody. And through them opening up, they can be more likely to get the help that they need. Because as you said, just opening up and speaking that truth, just that one act alone can make a huge difference. So that's what I tell people is if we can see their humanity, open up to them first, Ask them some open-ended questions that aren't using heavy language, because when you mention that, hurting yourself or others, or even if you use the words like anger or depression, sometimes kids will withdraw and then no longer open up in that conversation. You know, if you can use those, that positive, you know, reinforcements of letting them know that it's okay, you know, and when they do open up to you is just kind of making sure that you're not in trouble you know, and things will get better. Letting them know that their life is not defined by what's going on in their life right now. They can still overcome like so many others have. And I think that's important. And I think that a lot of teachers and parents already are doing that. And mm -hmm. we just want to encourage for more to do that. Mm -hmm. And we want to encourage more administrations to allow that to happen because I've also spoken with teachers who say that they struggle with administrations that don't want any type of emotional or mental health discussions in their class, period. You know, um, yeah. And we also want more administrations to understand that those automatic questioning when you're dealing with uh, troubled students of hurting yourself or others, that's actually going to be counterproductive. You know, those questions that you're required to ask anybody in a mental health atmosphere, those questions are going to get them to shut down and not open up to you. We need to approach that in a different manner. We need to come up with something new and something different mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because what's happening right now isn't working. Yeah, I totally, totally agree with that. So John, um, tell us where you are right now. Tell us, uh, you know, how, what you're, are you, are you healing? Um, how yeah. are you doing and how are your relationships with your mom and your family and your friends? Yeah. So, um, so I've been doing pretty well. I'm, um, you know, healing mentally, I think is a, a lifelong experience for me. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, I, I'm blessed to have a beautiful relationship with my mom, with, um, you know, the, the brother who abused me. I haven't spoken to him in forever. Um, and I've forgiven him, but forgiveness also doesn't mean that you allow somebody back into your life. Forgiveness Absolutely. is, yeah, forgiveness is just saying, I'm letting go of the anger. You know, I'm not angry with you anymore. I'm not saying what you did is okay. I'm not saying that you didn't do something horrible. I'm not saying that you shouldn't be, you know, held accountable. I'm just saying, you know what? I'm not going to hold on to that anger anymore. Mm -hmm. And so with him, he's no longer in my life. And I'm okay with that. So and he, hasn't, have, uh, he hasn't taken responsibility for his actions? 
Have you I talked mean, to him about them? Or? I, I haven't spoken to him in, like I said, pretty much almost shortly after I got arrested. We had a few conversations. Um, I didn't address him on it. I later, for therapeutic purposes, sent him a letter. I don't even know if he got it or not, you okay. know, okay. Um, but uh, never yeah. acknowledged it. Right. So I I have moved forward with my life and I am doing well with um I actually just spoke recently in my hometown. I was invited to speak at a public forum in a in a church, you know, where they do like social issues and conversations. And so they invited me and it was open to other members of the community, whoever wanted to go. And uh so it was very difficult, but also powerful. Mm -hmm. And because so many of the people there had been um, had either there were people who had been students at my school that mm -hmm. attended that discussion. There had been parents and grandparents mm -hmm. uh, that, you know, attended that discussion. Um, so, yeah, it was very difficult and it almost didn't happen because there was just so much controversy, obviously, in opposition. But in the end, the people who did attend, um, they were very open and you know, received me well. Um, so there's been a, that's another layer of healing. And as I'm just continuing to try to share, you know, and really working towards making that change, I'm not sure what my future is going to look like. I want to continue to speak out. Um, but, you know, I also have received a lot of uh, recent backlash on social media. And I have seen a lot of the pain that people have been going through just hearing me and seeing me and knowing the fact that I have 250,000 followers on TikTok, right? Um, and for some people, they don't even follow me, but just knowing that has caused them a lot of harm. And so I'm, I'm really reevaluating what I'm going to be doing with my future. I want to be a part of the solution. I don't know how that will happen. I've thought a lot about starting my own nonprofit in which we are able to encourage social emotional learning, in which we are able to encourage that healing process, um, the sooner the better in a child's life, right. and to get more mental health resources into our schools, into our communities, so that there is, when people do ask for you know, a therapist that it's not only available, but it's affordable because that's also an issue, not just for children, but for adults as well. I've always thought well, about 70, that. 70 percent of our kids do not get professional help. So they suffer alone. Exactly. So, you know, I, I'm still trying to figure it out. I've been I've been, you know, speaking for about two years now, um, but I'm also not I'm not willing to just power and push my way through and not change if i see that i'm causing more harm than good then i have to reevaluate what i'm doing and maybe i will speak out more but maybe i have to do it in a much different way and my end goal is really just to be a part of the solution so if i'm just continuing the problem i don't know you know i i i just don't know um you know i um the second half of my story, which we won't even get into, but I had been working at a homeless shelter and trying to help people there um, and just trying to be a positive member of the community who's able to help. Um, unfortunately, I ended up getting attacked myself by somebody who is in a mental health uh, struggle. And, you know, I was almost murdered myself. And, um, you know, I'm now actually uh, crippled. <laughs> my, my hands no longer really work because they almost got completely cut off. Um, I, I was going to ask about you. You have um, black straps on your hands. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Um, so, yeah. So lately I've been having a so my I got attacked by somebody, um, you know, who was going through their own mental health issues. Um, but unfortunately, you know, eventually we had to to, to ask him to leave uh the the shelter that i worked at and we didn't have security we didn't have metal detectors and you know we didn't know that in his locker because we had lockers for people to put their stuff um yeah he had um some small swords and uh he he came at me and um so i you know now here i am you know as people say full circle i've now become the victim of a horrible violent crime myself and um yeah the, so the i almost scars are awful i can see that your hands were in fact oh yeah no my so 
And now, so my and hands now, were almost completely cut off. My my right leg was almost completely cut off. My left foot was almost cut off. I spent months in the hospital, but now year and change later, I'm I'm able to walk, um, and I'm doing better with that. But my hands. Um, so I wear these black straps on my hands, you see, um, because um, if I they help push down on my fingers at the top knuckle to help me kind of stretch my fingers out, um, because if I don't wear them, my hands just kind of stay curled up and I, I can't really I struggle to straighten them up. So these straps kind of help me um, being able to, to stretch my fingers more straight but yeah so like i have my left wrist has been um has been fused because my hand was basically dangling at the end of my arm even when they reattached it and did their best to reattach the ligaments and everything my hand was just dangling so it's now attached but my my fingers you know they don't do a whole lot uh so now so after all that are you okay um emotionally so yeah, I'm, I uh, um, I go to EMDR therapy, yeah. uh, which is supposed to be really well for PTSD, um, yeah. and it has helped me out tremendously. Um, Are you living at home? Yeah, so I I, I have my own place. Uh, my brother had moved in with me. Um, you know, like I said, I have two brothers. So my other brother had, you know, he had moved in to take care of me because uh, I spent a couple months in the hospital and then I was in a nursing home for a while. Um, but yeah, so I'm, I'm living at home. I have a home health care aide who helps me out. But so I'm on workers comp because obviously this happened at work. Um, but eventually it's what am I going to do with the rest of my life? M my hands are basically no longer of a whole lot of use. So I say, all right, well, I can use my voice. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my goal had been to, like I said, I thought about starting my own nonprofit and um, I thought a lot about, I want to educate, advocate and connect with people, you know? And um, you know what? I think that we could really use your voice. So we'll talk offline about mm -hmm. that and we'll stay connected. Yeah. I really appreciate you joining us. This is going to be a two-part series. Yeah, we've been um, talking for a while and I, I really yeah. appreciate it. It's it's been Yeah, I do too. I'm I, I'm sorry that I have to uh to to cut this off, but we yeah. we will definitely be working together going forward. And um do you want to just say do you want to say anything to wrap us up here? Um I mean, really, I just want to thank you and, and commend you. Um, I can't imagine how difficult just everything you've been through. Um, but even just talking to me, and like you said, you've talked to other perpetrators of of school shootings. And um, I, I thank you for this opportunity. And uh, you, the more I read your story, the more I listen to your other episodes, you are an inspiration. And I hope that more people can learn from your, your compassion and forgiveness and your power to love, you know, and choosing love is a powerful thing. And I thank you for it. You know what, John, Jesse left that message, nurturing, healing, love. And I knew that that was the solution. And I do believe that people can work through issues. I believe they can make horrific mistakes and they can be turned around. They can turn around themselves. They can be forgiven. I believe in forgiveness. Yeah. I believe in it for the person who forgives. And I, I believe that you can forgive yourself and that you can go on and have a very productive life. I believe that we can learn a lot from your experience. And I appreciate the fact that you're willing to 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 uh to to be honest and to be talking about this so that we can use your story and your mistake to help other people and i and i want to help you do that so um thank you very much and uh you know i i believe that during the last 2 hours you have been choosing love and that's the most powerful thing that you can do. I know it took courage, but I appreciate you. And I appreciate what you're trying to do. And we'll keep going.
Yeah. Thank you. All right. Thank you, John. I'll be in touch. I'm so sorry. I actually have a call right now that I can't be late for, um, but I will be in touch later today. Sounds good. Take okay. care. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. It's all part of us. We can all choose love. It'll lift you up if you 